Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast focusing on climate news in the region stretching from Eastern Europe and Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Natalie Soer, a Paris-based climate journalist, and with me, as usual, is Angelina Davidova and Boris Schneider. I'll be bringing you the latest climate headlines from our region at the end of the episode. But before that, we'll be spending the show looking into the impact of China's oil and gas ventures in Central Asia. What? I hear you ask. I thought China was going green and aiming to reach net zero before 2060. Well, hang on a minute. One, the before 2060 net zero target by a country that spews out nearly 30% of global emissions isn't that green and in fact rated as highly insufficient by Climate Action Tracker if we want to keep dangerous climate breakdown in check. And two, the country is making efforts to transition to a more sustainable model, including by weaning itself off coal. That's true. But as it does that, it is increasing its reliance on imported oil and gas, including in Central Asia. The results of this on the ground in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan aren't pretty to see. Operations run by the China National Petroleum Corporation in Kazakhstan have soiled local water and induced cardiovascular and respiratory illnesses within local populations. Meanwhile, in Uzbekistan, the government has been prioritising gas exports to China over supplies to its own population. People have had to make do without electricity and heating. In Turkmenistan, the state is heavily in debt to China and repaying its debt directly in gas transfers. Sulfur dioxide, along with gas flaring and discarded emissions, pollute the water and soil and damage the Karakum Desert massively. So we'll be discussing the whole situation in detail with Kate Waters, um, the director of Crude Accountability, a US-based NGO, who penned a special report on this subject, um, which inspired today's episode. First, however, we have a feature by Stephen Bland on the China National Petroleum Corporation's impact in Kazakhstan. In 2020, trade between China and Kazakhstan totaled $21.5 billion dollars much of this in the lucrative oil and gas sectors, making China the country's fourth largest investor. Belt and Road Initiative plans include projects in metallurgy, oil and gas, chemical, engineering, energy, industry, agricultural processing and logistics. Compared to other foreign operators, however, Chinese companies tend to be less concerned about their environmental impact, particularly in oil and gas ventures, where no public data is available. In villages near China National Petroleum Corporation, CNPC, projects, locals have raised concerns about pollution and its associated health impacts, whilst water exploitation has resulted in increased cases of respiratory and cardiovascular diseases. In January of this year, popular protests against the regime erupted across Kazakhstan, and although they were ignited by a rise in fuel prices, the anger behind them spoke to a festering discontent with the government. Crushed with an iron fist and the assistance of Russian-led CSTO forces, the first time the organization's troops have been deployed in such a manner, 227 were killed and 6,000 arrested, according to official figures, though human rights groups say the true number may be far higher. But what does the unrest mean for China, which shares a 1,100-mile border with Kazakhstan, Certainly, President Tokayev's meeting with Xi Jinping in Beijing on February the 7th seemed to indicate business as usual, 
as did Xi agreeing to visit Kazakhstan later this year, his first international visit since the pandemic began. Following that meeting, coverage in China moved on to offers of economic assistance to counter the threat posed to Kazakhstan by so-called terrorism, with an increasing amount of commentators making baseless claims that the unrest had external origins. I spoke to Dr. Christopher White, Associate Professor and Geographer at Kimap University in Almaty, and asked him whether, given recent political instability, China will continue to increase its investments in Kazakhstan, and whether President Xi Jinping's promise to make China carbon neutral by 2060 is dependent on passing China's carbon footprint onto Kazakhstan. The respect to, to energy, of course, China's oil investments here, I think is well established. Now, with the Belt and Road Initiative, just want to be clear, we're talking about one specific piece in that colossal infrastructure project, the overland route linking China with Europe. The realities of geography dictate Kazakhstan's importance in this piece of the Belt and Road Initiative. Perhaps symbolic, but further evidence of Kazakhstan's importance here. In 2013, Chinese President Xi Jinping unveiled the Belt and Road Initiative Okay, this unprecedented, colossal infrastructure project. And the location from which this announcement was made? Kazakhstan's capital city. Will China's carbon footprint be passed on to Kazakhstan? This question seems to assume that uh, other industries might follow the crypto mining industry, which recently moved to Kazakhstan, essentially because China banned it. I have to question whether or not Kazakhstan will be able to absorb what we're assuming to be more and more CO2-emitting industries. Can the power grid handle it? And I'm afraid the answer might be no. It seems that a next destination could be Russia. Russia also has cheap power. In that case, of course, this part of China's carbon footprint is even moving beyond Kazakhstan to Russia. In December 2021, the US-based NGO Crude Accountability released the report Road to China, which examined the social and environmental costs of Chinese investments in Central Asia's energy sector. I spoke to its co-founder and executive director, Kate Waters, and asked her about the impact of China's oil and gas investments and a complaint filed with the UN Human Rights Council with regard to environmental pollution and lack of access to safe and clean drinking water. CNPC's operations in Kazakhstan have had significant environmental impacts on local populations. Villagers near operations run by Petro-Kazakhstan, for example, which is a subsidiary of CNPC, complain that their drinking water wells are drying up and that the facility emits strong odors, especially at night. There are other examples of communities near operations run by CNPC or their subsidiaries, which have created significant environmental and health problems for communities, whether it's drinking water problems, whether it's emissions in the air, inability to clean up the area around the facility. There's a variety of different risks that communities face. With regard to the complaint that was filed with the UN Human Rights Council, with regard to those affected by China's state oil operations in Kazakhstan, you know, access to clean drinking water is a basic human right. And the fact that Chinese oil and gas operations are threatening that access to drinking water should be a huge concern for the Kazakhstani government, as well as for the corporations that are creating the problem. And so 
our hope and strong belief is that the United Nations will take this complaint very seriously as it's a, a violation of a fundamental human right. In this repressive climate, few are willing to raise their voices, but an exception to the rule is Ardak Kubasheva from the village of Kenkiak in the Aktob region of western Kazakhstan. The site of vast oil fields, CMPC, arrived 25 years ago, since when locals have suffered from water pollution and shortages. According to data from EcoService, 92.1% of villages in Kenkiak face unhealthy living conditions. Many suffer from respiratory and cardiovascular diseases, with airborne hydrogen sulfide levels 13 times above the legal limit. Ardak spoke with me from the office of the local governor. The number of jobs for locals hasn't increased, and many remain unemployed as companies will only hire those who can afford to pay a bribe. In the last year, the local water supply has improved, but the quality of water is still poor, and the water smells of oil. Of course, the residents are unhappy about this. The local authorities have demanded that the oil companies change their production technology. Local governor Makar Utejanov, however, is promising brighter times ahead. For the past six months, the local authorities have begun to impose tough requirements on oil companies. Currently, production at 26 wells has been stopped at the Coxid underground water field. Companies are being required to adopt horizontal drilling technologies, which will make production more expensive, but more environmentally friendly. Asked to comment, CNPC declines to respond. Many thanks to Stephen Bland for reporting on the CNPC's trail of devastation in Kazakhstan. And now let's hear from the author of the report on the matter, Kate Watters. Angelina began by asking how Chinese investment in gas and oil are impacting locals' lives, not only in Kazakhstan, but in Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. We recently published a report called The Road to China, which basically looked at this issue, uh, the development of oil and gas resources in Central Asian region. And we were very interested to understand what, in fact, was the impact of Chinese development, Chinese investments in this area. So we did some research, we took some field trips, we um, accessed communities in Western Kazakhstan primarily, but also in other regions. And as much as we could, got information from Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. Um, Obviously, Turkmenistan's an, an extremely closed country, so it's difficult to get information there. But what we found is, you know, not surprising and not dissimilar to the investments by other oil and gas companies from other parts of the world. It's not that China is unique in its um, pollution and its environmental degradation and its abuse of human rights, but it certainly is in the family or in the in the group of organizations that are, are doing that of companies. So what we found primarily is was two things. One, that there's um, a very serious impact on drinking water particularly in western Kazakhstan around the Kokshida um, water aquifer, which provides water or has the capacity to provide water for much of western Kazakhstan. And also that there has been an impact on health, not surprisingly, um, due to flaring and also due to some of the other toxic emissions that come from the process of oil and gas development. And that there's very little information 
about this and very little understanding or knowledge among community members at the local level in particular about what the risks are that they're being exposed to. And just to clarify for our listeners, uh, where does Chinese investment go to in Central Asia? Which sectors of the economy are we talking about? I know you analyze mostly oil and gas sectors in your report, but can you give us a very like, general overlook, like where the investment is going to? Sure. I mean, the investment's going into lots of different sectors. So all you have to do is go to any, you know, bazaar or any marketplace or any store in Central Asia, just as in, in you know, and other parts of the world, and you can see that there's investment and that there's there's a large trade relationship with China. So it's certainly not ex- uh, exclusively the oil and gas sector. There are investments in agriculture. There are investments in water. There are also investments, interestingly, in um, alternative energy, in wind power and solar power. So um, although, you know, we have focused in, in the research that we've done on the oil and gas sector because that's our bailiwick, that's what we do. I feel that it's really important for us to point out that if those investments shifted away from the fossil fuel sector into, say, more wind energy or other alternatives, other sustainable sources of energy, it isn't a given that this has to necessarily be a bad thing. And it also might help both China and Kazakhstan um, work towards the country's goals from the COP26, from Paris, you know, sort of towards our overall joint climate goals um, as a planet that are so critical at this stage of the game. Kate, we know that your organization uh, filed a complaint with the UN's Human Rights Council against the NPC on the grounds that it was denying locals uh, the access to drinking water. Could you tell our listeners, please, how that complaint has fared? Uh, where is it at right now? And have you or are you considering filing such complaints in other countries in Central Asia? Um, the complaint is in process right now, so there isn't honestly a whole lot to talk about. It's before you know the special rapporteurs and before the Human Rights Council. As we speak, we're hoping to meet with them and speak with them again very soon. But you know, along with many other institutions and many other processes during the pandemic, things have slowed down. So we are still in process there, and I don't want to talk a lot about you know what's happening because we're we're in that process in the middle right now. Our hope, of course, is that CNPC and other companies that are um, investing and operating uh, will understand that they need to comply with with the, the national legislation and with international standards. Access to drinking water is a basic human right. Um, the folks who are living around these fields have access and need for this water, and there's absolutely no reason that oil and gas development needs to infringe and impinge upon the quality and the and the amount, frankly, of drinking water that is accessible to local communities. In terms of other countries, the information that we have right now on the ground is limited to Kazakhstan. Um, I think you're probably aware of how restrictive the environments are in Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. And for that process, we would need people who are willing to come forward. Um, that's a very dangerous proposition for environmental defenders and local community activists or just residents anywhere, but particularly This is the case in in countries like Uzbekistan and, and of course, specifically Turkmenistan. And have there been precedents for these kind of of complaints? Um, I mean, what are the chances that 
it will be heard or that there will be some kind of positive outcome? Or is it more a formality that such complaints are being filed? I mean, how often does it uh, happen, for example? I don't know how often it happens, but I certainly think that that we have a good possibility for a positive outcome. This is what this institution was set up to do, to protect the rights of people who have difficulty protecting their own rights for a variety of really reasons, whether that's because of repressive governments or whether that's because of overbearing corporations that have relationships with governments and not necessarily with, with local communities or even representatives of local communities. So I think that we are very hopeful that this will be taken seriously It's, these kinds of cases have been heard from other parts of the world. Um, special rapporteurs from the United Nations have paid attention to Kazakhstan in the past. For example, around the case at Beryozovka, where the Karachaganak oil and gas condensate field is located, and there was poisoning of children there from toxic emissions. The United Nations paid a lot of attention to that case, highlighted it in, in its report. So we're confident that this will be taken seriously. Well, you mentioned local residents. And what would you say is the reaction of local politicians, authorities, residents towards the Chinese investment in general and also pollution associated with that investment? Also, are there any local NGOs or civil society movements working on the topic? That's a really good question or a good series of questions. Um, in terms of response from from local authorities, from local officials, um, it really depends on where the, the locality, it depends on where we are, are talking about. There are some cases, for example, where local officials, local administrative bodies are quite concerned about what's happening. They live in these communities. Their families live in these communities. Their children and grandchildren are drinking water and breathing the air. So they have, an, an, you know, obviously a very significant investment in what's going on there. I think It's going to be interesting to see what happens now following sort of the January events in Kazakhstan, sort of how local officials respond and react. Um, we've seen some differences, significant differences, I think, depending on which part of the country we're talking about. Um, so there certainly is some support. And if you look at films from, um, you know, journalists, independent journalists like um, the folks at, at uh, Prosta Journalistica or Just journalism, you can see some interviews with local officials where they've talked very openly about what's going on um, in their communities. In terms of civil society, there are certainly civil society organizations in Kazakhstan that are focused on this, these issues, um, whether we're talking about groups that are based in Almaty, groups that are based in Western Kazakhstan. Atirao, for example, has a very um, active environmental community. Um, but there are also, you know, individuals living in the villages themselves, in the communities on the edges of these oil and gas fields who are concerned um, and who pay attention. They don't necessarily have a registered organization that they rely on, but there is community organizing. There are people who are paying attention and there are certainly people who are concerned about this issue and have been willing to speak with journalists and civil society representatives and others who have asked them questions about what's happening. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, your report also points out that uh, China's transition away from coal is leading to the country becoming increasingly reliant on imports of specifically gas and oil in Central Asia. And I read that according to the International Energy Agency, by 
2035, China will increase its domestic reliance on oil to some 80% and on natural gas to 46%. Uh, can we say that China is kind of outsourcing its dirty fossil investments abroad while at the same time trying to go green at home? Is that the strategy? I think that's a fair assessment. I think that's a fair question, certainly, to raise and a fair um, issue to put before Chinese authorities and before Chinese corporations. One of the things that we saw in Uzbekistan, for example, and we talk about this a little bit in our report, is there seems to be an increasing reliance on coal and the development and, and kind of building out of coal infrastructure, um, and that Chinese investors are paying attention to that. We see this also in Kazakhstan, where there's an increase in Chinese investment and import to them, export from Kazakhstan of, of coal. So I think there is a big concern about, you know, whether, and I've, I've heard activists from Kazakhstan talk about their concern that China is sort of outsourcing its dirtiest technology or its old technology or its, you know, kind of, um, yeah, technologies from the past rather than putting highest new levels of technology into the country. So I think that's an, actually a very fair assessment and a, certainly a concern, something to keep our eyes on for the future. So it does sound like China's decarbonization plans at home does not always mean decarbonization investments in other countries, including Central Asia. So right. um, what do you, uh, what are your thoughts on China's current pledges? And uh, what are your thoughts about the Belt and Road Initiative of China? Um, do you think uh, it can be problematic for the decarbonization plans in Central Asia? I do. Um, I do. And I think, you know, I think this is something that we need to consider Certainly for China, and that's what we're talking about today is, you know, sort of if you clean your plate at home, but you throw all your garbage into your neighbor's yard, you know, have you really done, are, are you really cleaning up, right? And I think that's something we certainly need to be concerned with, with China. But I would say this is a concern overall for industrial nations and post-industrial nations that are engaged in international trade and international economic world where we try to meet our goals at home by sort of outsourcing the uglier and nastier stuff. And I want to be, I just want to make sure that we are clear that this isn't just something that China is doing. This is something that we need to look at for many of the, of the big, the big polluters in the world, the big global greenhouse gas emitters, including my country, including Russia. I mean, there are, are major, major sources of Greenhouse global greenhouse gas emissions and and other um, emissions that we need to be concerned about that may not just be coming from inside of our own borders and so China certainly fits into that category. Just to follow up on China regarding that questions, could you give us any positive examples of how other countries that are involved in the Belt and Road Initiative um, are handling Chinese investments or other positive examples of how? China is investing along the Belt and Road um, at a higher ecological standard than we see in those cases in Central Asia? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I would say to focus inside Central Asia, I mean, we I mentioned very early on in our discussion that 
China is in investing also in wind, wind energy in, in Kazakhstan. This is f- fabulous. This is tremendous. Um, it's an opportunity for employment for local people. It's green energy. It's forward looking. It's um, the, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and other development banks have gotten involved in financing this. So this, this could be a model for how, you know, how we can shift from these massive polluting fossil fuel industries, mining industries, you know, sort of the model of the past into something that, that works better for the future. So, yeah, I think there are examples out there. Um, it's a question of whether or not there's the political will to make those changes and whether or not those who have the political authority to make those decisions are willing to make those shifts and see the capacity. I was actually remembering my experience of being in Tajikistan, which is uh, another Central Asian country, not analyzed in your report, but somehow I have a relevant story to remember. Um, I was going one day with a taxi driver, uh, like across the, through the tunnel in the mountains, and he was telling that this tunnel was built by Chinese infrastructure and by Chinese investors. And um, I also remember that I was living in a hotel where people from various aid agencies, like from European Union, from like Germany, France, Switzerland, UK, US, Turkey, um, and China, they were all living in the same hotel and like meeting for breakfast. And that um, taxi driver was telling me that among a general public, there's this perception that European um, aid uh, organizations and like development organizations, they organize a lot of trainings, capacity buildings, educational programs, and Chinese investors very often come with just like money and infrastructure, like they build tunnels, they build roads, they build bridges. But then um, as, a, as, a, as a favor back, they ask, say, for a share in a mineral or metal company or company which does, I don't know, mining company. So um, what would you say? Would you say this estimation is correct? Yes, <laughs> I would. I think there's two different models, right? There's the model where we come in, economics, not interested in trying to, you know, change your political system or improve in big air quotes, improve your, your culture, your, your economy, or, you know, anything we're here to do this job. We're coming in, we're, we're bringing our stuff with us. We're going to bring a lot of our own workers with us. We're not interested in, in changing you in any way. And I think that's definitely um, the Chinese model. And then you have this sort of Western kind of more, do-gooder, and again, in quotes, model where we're going to come in, we're going to hire some people, we're going to provide some social investment into the community, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing, so that we can do what we want, and we'll be perceived in a sort of positive light, um, and we'll share more information. I think there's a big question at the end of the day, whether or not that sharing of information change, changes anything at the end, right? We certainly know more about what's going on, but is it is it qualitatively cleaner? Is it qualitatively better? I think that's still a question that we that we need to ask. So, um, you know, you can get all kinds of information out of out of Chevron, but is Tengiz any cleaner than Kokshida? I don't I don't think so. I mean, I don't know. You know, we still have worker riots at Tengiz. We still have problems around the Karachaganak oil and gas field. We have massive problems at Kashigan. So 
you know, we focused on China for this report because we felt like this was an area that needed to needed some some focus and needed to be to be kind of learned more about. But this is not by any stretch of the imagination to say that, you know, these guys are doing a much, much worse job than, say, Chevron or Exxon or ENI or Luke Oil or Rosneft or, you know, any of the other corporations that are in the region. They just have a different style. Maybe as a follow-up question to what you said about this Chinese style, as you put it, one of the recurring themes in your report is how Chinese gas and oil investments in the region often violate international agreements on environmental protection. So, for example, there is this Aarhus Convention, which Kazakhstan and um, I think Turkmenistan signed in 1998. And uh, this convention commits signatories to give their citizens access to environmental information, but also to take part in environmental decision-making. But, however, by contrast to Western and to Russian companies operating in the region, there is almost no public data available on Chinese fossil fuel ventures' environmental impact. So could you explain to our listeners why these violations are taking place and whether such agreements are kind of toothless? And maybe as a last question, whether the international community can really do anything about such violations if, let's say, climate diplomacy can offer any leverage in these cases? Yeah. So the Aarhus Convention is a really critical and important convention, particularly when we're talking about environmental issues. And as you said, access to information, participation in decision-making, and the third and final piece of the Aarhus Convention is access to justice in cases where there has been those first two things have not happened. So this is an incredibly important piece of international, it's not legislation, but an international convention. And I do think that um, even though it's not uh, compulsory, there is there are teeth there. First of all, because it gives local communities a tool and it gives civil society a tool to approach governments with. So I, I think it is extremely important, particularly in a, in a country like Kazakhstan, and there have been cases in the past where Kazakh civil society has raised issues with the Secretariat of the Aarhus Convention saying, hey, listen, there have been violations of Aarhus in our country, and we would like you to hold our, our government accountable for that. Um, and that's it gets into sort of reputation on the international level, right? C companies... Corporations can't be held to account by the Aarhus Convention, but but countries can, country governments can. And, you know, if you want to be recognized in the international community as a, as a good player, you don't want a stack of, of violations against you with the Aarhus Secretariat or at the United Nations or with the OSCE or even at the OECD. I mean, right, these, in, these international institutions are there to sort of show that you can be a team player and a good player and that there's the rule of law and there's recognition of, of all of the national and international conventions that a government signs on to. Why these violations are taking place, I think, in the instance with China, is that as we were talking about this, this kind of culture of secrecy, this tendency to not include um, and the expectation that citizens need to be included is not there in the same way that with a Western corporation, there's the expectation that citizens in some ways are going to be included, whether they're listened to and whether they're 
input is taken into account seriously is an entirely different question. But but I think that's why with Chinese corporations, we see fewer instances where there's actually been a community consultation or there's actually been an environmental impact assessment and a series of consultations held with the community to say, hey, here's what we're going Here's what we're going to do. We also see fewer instances where you have, you know, financial investments by institutions like the World Bank, where there are questions of pre prior informed consent or whether or not the community actually understood that this project was going to take place. So I think this in, in part answers the question of why less of that is done when there are Chinese investments. Thank you, Katie. Yes, thank you so much for being with us. That's been a terrific conversation and uh, I truly learned a lot and I hope our listeners did as well. And now for the latest news from our region. Bulgaria is likely to become a net importer of electricity after 2030, the director of the Energy and Climate Programme at the Centre for the Study of Democracy, CSD, Martin Vladimirov, said. In an interview published by Euractiv on the 15th of February, Vladimirov said that after 2030, the country would be importing 10 to 25% of consumption, depending on the speed of the coal phase-out. According to Viktoria Abramchenko, Russia's Deputy Prime Minister for Environmental Policy, the country's government plans to invest 5.9 billion rubles, or $79 million, into climate and decarbonisation research in the next eight years. As reported by the Moscow Times on the 9th of February, the programme's focus will be on the reduction of air pollution and improving the health and economic conditions in heavily industrialised cities. Russia, one of the world's top fossil fuel producers, has vowed to go carbon neutral by 2060. Poland has demanded the EU crack down on financial speculation within its carbon market, the so-called emissions trading system, EUETS, and introduce control mechanisms, Reuters reported on the 15th of February. EU policymakers are preparing to negotiate a major reform of the ETS, which requires the industrial sector and power plants to obtain CO2 allowances to cover every tonne of CO2 they release. Albania's power utility, KES. H agreed to lease a mobile oil-fired thermal power plant with an install capacity of 110 to 130 megawatts from US Italian consortium Accelerate Energy Renko. Balkan Green Energy News reported on the 18th of February. In October, the country was forced to declare an energy emergency because of a lack of electricity for domestic consumption. Central Asia is warming faster than the global average, the Third Pole, a platform dedicated to the Himalayan watershed and the rivers that originate there, warned on the 15th of February. The website quoted several World Bank experts working in Central Asia who referred to the risks of melting glaciers, a phenomenon that has wide-ranging consequences for households, agriculture and energy production, and is particularly difficult to manage because of river basins and water stores straddling multiple borders. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and share the episode on social media. We'd also like to thank our supporters at The Battleground magazine and Enost. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. Get in touch on Twitter where you'll find us at Eurasian Climate. We'll be back soon with a new episode. So see you then. Hold up. 